Hello, and welcome to our podcast, Arizona Opera Behind the Scenes. I'm Cassie Roble, the Director of Education and Community Engagement. And I'm Kathleen Trott, the Shop Manager for the Marlou Allen and Scott Stallard Costume Artisan Workshop. Thank you all for joining us today. In this podcast series, we're going to introduce you to all the departments and people that are necessary to produce the operas you enjoy. In this episode, you will meet Michaela Woltz and Robert Bosworth, two members of the Marion Ruspolin Arizona Opera Studio. tuned in last week we played trivia at the end of the episode the question that we asked was of the four following people who is not a classically trained opera singer mike rowe jackie chan dr drew and joel gray and the answer was joel gray surprisingly we are so excited to be joined today by two of our marion ruspel and arizona opera studio artists welcome Hi, thanks for having us. Hi there. Thanks for being here. We're so excited to have you. We're going to start this episode by getting to know you guys. We have um, with us Robert, who is a second-year studio artist, and Michaela, who is a first-year studio artist. So let's start. um, We'll start with Michaela. And can you just give us your title and um, how long you've been in the studio artist program and what your title means that you do with us at Arizona Opera in the program. Sure. Um, I'm Michaela Wools. I am the mezzo-soprano young artist uh, at Arizona Opera. And I started here about a month and a half ago. So yeah, relatively new to Arizona, still adjusting to the dryness (laughs) and the heat. And yeah, I am, uh, my job is basically, we have monthly concerts at this point in our reimagined season. I'm performing arias and some scenes eventually. And yeah, during my day-to-day, we do coachings with Chris Cano, the head of music, uh, every week. Um, And uh, Robert's there playing piano for us. And yeah, we also do voice lessons, and um, I had a fitting this week. You know, little things keeping us busy. Okay, great. (laughs) So then, Robert, what do you do with us? Because you're not a singer, right? You said you were the pianist, so. I'm the pianist here with the studio program, yep. And uh, also things are a bit different. This is my second year in the program, so it is a bit, I don't want to say jarring. It's not jarring, but it's quite different than uh, what last year and a normal season looks like. But as Michaela said, uh, currently a lot of my time is just being in the coachings and playing for the coachings that Chris is leading uh, with each of the studio singers who are all wonderful. And then playing the concerts that we are live streaming, the Studio Spotlight concerts, um, one which we did in October and another one that we have coming up in November. And besides that, I'm going to be working on the newly, I guess, reimagined Copper Queen. Will we hear you specifically in the motion picture, or are you just rehearsing? 
Uh, I, as far as I know, I will be in the orchestra. I'm not exactly sure what has happened with the instrumentation for the show now that things are a bit different. Um, but the original, how it was going to premiere, there is a, a pretty extensive, or not extensive, but featured part for a piano in the orchestra. So I imagine that, especially if there are any limitations with whatever might have to happen with orchestrations now, due to all of the precautions, I imagine the piano is still going to be in there. Featured, for um, sure. Just to help fill out stuff. Do you typically, in a normal season, so last year when you were here, did you play in our pit during performances? Uh, depends on the show, of course. Last year, it turned out where I was in the pit quite a bit. Um, what did we do? We, did, we started with uh, Shining Brow. I was in the pit for that. Technically, I, I was they ran out of room in the pit for me, so I was sitting up underneath the proscenium. I was just going to ask you if was, this is the show that they stuck you like up and out of yeah. the pit, but off to the side. Yeah, so that was my first, my first thing here was just kind of a whirlwind of that show. I mean, it's a, it's a very musically interesting show as well, so adding that to you know being new in Arizona and all of a sudden now you're just kind of like watching the conductor about as far away as people on the stage would, which you're not used to if you're playing in the pit, you know, you're right, hope, depending on the size of the pit, you're usually right there in their face a little bit more. Um, and then last year also I was in the pit for Riders of the Purple Sage and not for La Boheme for obvious reasons. Um, what else did we do? Fellow Travelers had a pit piano part and would have done it in the Strauss that got canceled, um, unfortunately, because that's another, that's <laughs> unfortunately and fortunately, because that's a, that's a bit of an intimidating piano part in the pit. Um, but I was very much looking forward to it because I love that show and daunting as the part would have been, it would have been a, I would have had a lot of fun with it, so. Right, Michaela, you were not here last year. What were you doing at this time last year? Were you performing somewhere? I was, I think I was in, so I was living in New York, like doing small gigs. Um, I think I was in St. Louis with Opera Theater of St. Louis doing their, um, their outreach program, uh, Cinderella. So got to sing a little bit of Rossini and it was actually my first time singing Rossini. So I'm glad I got to do it on a very small scale. Wow, that's great. It was not the easiest. <laughs> you have the benefit here of being able to work with the same pianist for a while then is that is that really nice and then but then does it is it like a double-edged sword and that then when you go out if you have to audition do you take your pianist with you when you audition like what happens then in that case um it's it kind of depends on what repertoire you're you're going to be performing if it's like something really obscure mm -hmm. and that that pianist would probably have never seen before. You might want to bring someone that knows it and you've practiced with before. But yeah, it's really nice having like getting to work with Robert like throughout the whole year and because we we kind of like learn yeah. to like read each other and like yeah. and getting to perf like I don't have to explain my tempo or explain like uh -huh. different little nuances that I want to like incorporate into my performance. Like it, it, yeah, it's it is nice to have access yeah, or get to work with like uh, I think that that's one of those things that probably actually a lot of people who go to opera don't even think about the fact that like 
the person who's on stage also has to deal with all this other stuff. <laughs> like, you can sing it how you want to sing it, but if the conductor doesn't want you to sing it that way, or if the orchestra can't keep up with you, yeah. right? So you constantly, even as a pianist, you have to deal with the other performers working with them to figure out your pace and success, yeah? Yeah, you definitely are getting a lot of different information from a lot of different people. And there are definitely certain people that you need to like keep happy. Uh-huh. And so you incorporate those things more <laughs> readily. I mean, and, and sometimes you're going to get information from people that are just going to, they just want to tell you stuff. Right. So mm-hmm. you get good at, especially being like doing auditions for tons of different companies and working with yeah. all sorts of different people and coachings and different lessons and you're getting a lot of opinions. So it's, yeah definitely good to like figure out figure out like what to keep and what to let go of. Michaela can you explain a little bit about where you're at professionally so in regards to you're in this young arts young artist program at Arizona Opera what exactly that means where are you on your career path where is your end goal that sort of stuff. Yeah um well I just graduated with my master's degree in the spring of 2019 um, from Boston Conservatory. And so a common next step for young opera singers is to do like a maybe a summer program. And uh, I did like opera theater and some things in Germany. And yeah, it was really nice. It was my first, it was like an excuse to go to Germany. Yeah, that's <laughs> amazing. It's taking you all over the world. I love that. Yeah. And then uh, doing a, a year-long residency like we do here at Opera or Arizona Opera um, is kind of the next step on that journey. And it's great because we get to do like in a in a normal season, not a COVID season. <laughs> we would do like small roles within the opera, or sometimes principal roles, depending on what the season was. And um, get to work with different uh, conductors and get lessons and coachings and kind of just get to build up your repertoire and uh, experience in the real opera world. And then from here, some people go on to do other programs or you could hopefully start your like freelance career and like start doing jobs at all over the world. I mean, that's the goal. Right. <laughs> right. That that's happens. It's kind of, don't really get to predict that. So, Robert, how does that, how does that work for you then? Like, is your, is your end game to just, is it to support singers and play for them always or? Uh, that's what it looks like currently. I enjoy that a lot. Um, I, I started out in my undergraduate degree. I got a piano performance major and that was primarily focused on solo piano and that's just what I thought I was going to go into having been brought up you know with piano lessons and solo music and all this sorts of stuff Um, but then about halfway through that I started really I got involved with a partial scholarship to play in a company for you know x number of students per semester got you x number of dollars that kind of situation um and I really started to enjoy that. And I had played with you know, my high school choirs or if people were doing like 
a song in the pageant in high school or something like for Miss High School or whatever it was called. Right. <laughs> I would play, so I, it wasn't new to playing with people besides just solo, um, but I really started to enjoy that quite a bit more uh, than, you know, working on purely only solo reps. So then um, that got me working with some of the voice teachers at the University of Kentucky, which is where I got my undergrad degree and the, vo the vocal coaches on staff there, um, they just started to kind of suggest that I maybe look into some summer programs and think about that as a thing that is a, a career that you can do, which I'm sure probably registered somewhere in my brain, but I was not really <laughs> aware to what extent that you could. They don't really in high school like the job fair. They're not like, no, they don't have like a collaborative pianist booth. Yeah, right, so right. Right. Yeah. That's There's not no thing. table for that. Well, and it's kind of fun. Like you said, a lot of people might not even know all the stuff that a singer, yeah. they, they come and they see the final product. A lot of people probably don't know that, you know, it is either a pianist or a team of pianists who do the majority of the rehearsal until you know five days before, before that person yeah. sitting there seeing the show is really when the orchestra gets there for the yeah. first well a week or a yeah, few days before but yeah depending. they're not there through the entire process but you right. need music through the entire process yeah. during the rehearsal process you are essentially acting as the whole orchestra until they come in right at the end right yes yeah so it's um it's it can be kind of nuts because you it's kind of a mind shift. It's also a different way of thinking about music than a solo pianist would, ideally, um, in that oftentimes you're playing what they call a reduction, which is basically some editor's interpretation of how do we translate what the orchestra does and make that hopefully somewhat playable and, and legible to be read on you know two staffs for the pianist to read and sometimes that's more successful in making a reduction feasible uh, than other times uh, but it's a lot of the, a lot of the work is deciding what to play that's written on the page what not to play that's written on the page um, what to add that's not there uh, basically as long as uh, with with a few I mean it depends on what the conductor wants to hear too if the conductor specifically wants to hear um, get, or get the singers used to hearing a, like a French horn solo that comes in uh, at this part that might not be in the reduction. Uh, hopefully you, depending on the piece, if it's a new work, you might not have access to a full score. If it's an older work, you hopefully can at least obtain one long enough to study from it and see, you know, what what's playing what, uh, are there any blatant things that you want to be sure to bring out so the singer gets used to hearing that in the rehearsal process so that all of a sudden when they're on stage with the orchestra, there's not like a rogue trumpet they weren't ready for or <laughs> something like that. You guys are both then doing a ton of work before you even get into the room with other people, with the conductor, with the stage manager, with the rest of the production departments and crews. You've done a whole bunch of homework and background work all by yourselves or with your pianist or your coach because I assume that you guys have do you do, do you work all by yourself or no you have coaches that will help you with things um usually I'll like learn it myself mm -hmm. first 
and then I'll take it to uh, a coach or a voice teacher on certain parts that aren't working or things like that to just uh, work out the kinks, but yeah. As a collaborative pianist, you are also coaching them as well. So you said Chris is the head of music, so he's your primary coach here at Arizona Opera. But are you coaching as well, separately? So far, that's not happening this season with the logistics of space use and time we can be in the space and so forth. Um, I enjoy coaching, so I'm, I'm hoping that maybe things keep going on an upswing where we can maybe expand a bit what we're doing last season it was it was both of us um doing yeah our separate one-on-one coachings instead of just me serving as a pianist only right exactly that's a cool aspect of a collaborative pianist i think at least because you're not only you're not like i just said you're not not just the piano you're not sitting there silent (laughs) at the piano yeah Yeah, you're actively engaging in the rehearsal and and that's that that's really neat to me and and very different from what people i think typically think of when you hear of a pianist you think of someone who's just a piano robot right a a piano robot (laughs) essentially you know um so you have this whole other aspect as this collaborative pianist which is i feel like collaborative pianists are like all-knowing beings i agree with that (laughs) i absolutely agree with that (laughs) i don't know i think that you you have like a lot of knowledge on like language and um like the music and the style of the music and like Hmm. how things should sound but i think singers do to a great extent too at least more times than not i mean i think we just i think for whatever reason every different type of musician brings their own kind of way of thinking about music i think just as a pianist i've kind of been trained to think about things in a bit of a different way musically uh and I think part of that's just the nature of having to do, I mean, I know that singers, you all do tons of stuff with your entire body to get your product. Then on top of all the stuff that you all do to make sound, you're then thrown blocking and costumes to deal with and people that you have to interact with physically and you have to memorize all your stuff as, a, as an onstage person. I don't have to do that. A little bit ago, you mentioned language. And so, as I'm sure everyone listening knows, opera is not just sung in English. And quite frankly, most of the time, it's not sung in English. So do you speak lots of different languages? What is the singer process? I assume, while it would be awesome if you spoke seven languages, I assume you're not fluent in seven languages. So what does that process look like? How are you singing so confidently in, in Italian if you don't speak the language? Yeah, well, in uh, we, as singers, we study Italian, French, German are the main ones, and then English, which we don't really have to study. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I took those like as a language class. I don't speak any of them fluently, but um, I can stumble through them and always learning more. <laughs> but um, the way that we are able to sing in these languages without being able to speak them fluently is something called IPA or International Phonetic Alphabet in the language it's 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 like one alphabet that can be used for any different language and each thing is pronounced a very specific way and so if it's written that way when you read it you can read it phonetically and pronounce it that way 
It's like writing the sounds down. You have the translation of the words also. So that way you know how to pronounce the thing, but you also know what the thing says. So that way when you're singing sad in whatever language, you're not acting happy. Uh, right, right. <laughs> Unless that's the point, is to be contrary. So you're not just singing blind. You know what the other language is trying to elicit feeling-wise also. Yeah. Uh, you, you pretty much end up like memorizing the words and their meaning for each opera you do. Because you, you have to know what you're saying. You have to translate it because it's a performance. You're telling a story. You don't want to just park and bark, as they say in the and opera. You often world. have to translate it on your own, too, because even if there's some, some scores do have a translation in there, mm -hmm. but oftentimes that translation into English is more as if, like, say you wanted to perform it in English. It might not necessarily be an accurate translation. Sure. So you're missing maybe some of the nuance and subtext of the words in their original language or just flat out wrong i mean i did a german <laughs> i did a i can't remember if it was hansel and gretel that i did once but i the trans the word was ja and the translation above the word ja said no that's the opposite, that's the opposite. I, I thought that's just completely wrong like what's going on with that or they try to like fit in words with like the right syllables even if they're not necessarily yeah. the same word. Just to make or it performable. So or force yeah. rhyming, that's also true. Yeah. Yeah, so it makes it so more performable in a translation. Way, It's a lot of score work that you have to do. Like when you first get a score, you, I personally like, I will highlight my part just because I like to, some people don't. Um, and then I'll write in the translation. And then if it's a language that I'm not as familiar with, I'll write in certain words with the IPA and then you mark in breaths, and then you mark in phrases, and then if you look at a score by the end of an opera, it's gonna look, it's gonna look, it's gonna look a little messy. All right, so we're gonna take a quick pause in our episode to talk about some of Arizona Opera's upcoming events. On December 3rd, Arizona Opera will hold our first ever virtual book club meeting at 6 p.m., featuring the book Bel Canto by Ann Patchett. If you're interested in joining our book club, visit our Facebook page and join our private book club Facebook group. You can also sign up on our website, azopera.org. And our next Studio Spotlight series event, we're going to feature three of our Marion Roos Pullen Arizona Opera Studio alumni, as well as our new orchestra concertmaster. This will be available to view on Arizona Opera On Demand. Also, the Arizona Opera Costume Shop will be hosting two virtual master classes in the month of December. You can purchase a kit and then participate with us while you learn fabric painting and two-part resin work. We'll have information about how to sign up for that on our website. So be sure to check our calendar at azopera.org where you can find all of our upcoming events and make sure you check our channel, Arizona Opera On Demand. Now, let's get back to the episode. Robert mentioned how he kind of ended up working in opera, but Michaela, how did you come to us? Did you always want to be an opera singer, or did your life meander you here? Definitely a bit of meandering happened. Um, I didn't even really know what opera was. I, I wasn't like brought up on it. I knew I was uh, a big fan, am a big fan of musical theater, uh -huh. and was like, 
taking part in like community theater growing up and school productions. Um, and through that, I got very close with my choir teacher and she got a, I grew up in St. Louis, so very close to Opera Theater of St. Louis. And they sent out a um, little pamphlet about a two week summer camp for kids or teenagers. I was, I think I was 17. And uh, she actually paid for me to go. And she said, I think this would be really good for you. And I went and I met my first voice teacher and she encouraged me to audition for um, schools and helped me prepare. Cause I, I really have to turn in your um, audition videos and recordings like in the fall. So I had about like three months to like figure out how to sing opera, <laughs> but I, yeah, so I just kept meeting the, the right people, and then they would, like, trade me off to the next person. Okay. And then I got into Boston Conservatory. But, yeah, it all happened in the span of, like, six months that I, like, met someone who suggested it, and then I started applying for schools. So how, something that I think about often as I'm singing alone in my car and thinking about how no one would want to hear that, but <laughs> how, how do you figure out that you can sing opera because singing opera is different than you know singing pop music or what I'm doing in my car so how do you figure out that you have that or are able to do that is everybody able to do that um (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if everyone is able to sing opera just like I don't think everyone's able to sing pop or like I think certain voices are more inclined to sing certain kind of rep um I was singing like they call them art songs, which are mm-hmm. kind of like yeah. intro. They could be like considered like intro to, to arias um, in operas. And also singing choral music. I, I was really involved in that. So I kind of started singing in that style with like longer phrases and more melodic singing and like using vibrato. Um, and it, it felt natural and I think at first it is a little bit of like imitation of like what you think that sort of sound is. Um, but yeah, getting, getting your hands on a really good voice teacher to tell you <laughs> yes or no. Yeah. <laughs> right. Sure. That, that makes first. sense. That makes sense. That's a, I think that it's sort of been a theme in general since we started doing this for Cassie and I that many of us have ended up in opera never having thought to even begin here. So, Robert, what are some performances that you really enjoyed? I was just going to say, I, when I was getting a master's at Manhattan School of Music, I also took part in The Song Continues, which is now called something else, and I can't think of what it's called, but it's at Carnegie Hall. Renee Fleming now leads it. It was Marilyn Horne's program for a long time. Um, but it focuses on art songs, which are the things that Michaela mentioned earlier, which are basically just, you know, poetry set to music. Um, And so it wasn't, I didn't get to play in the big, big hall at Carnegie, but got to do, um, it was basically a series of master classes led by various guest people, uh, Marilyn Horn being one of them. And I remember just being equally nerve-wracked and just really like they went really well um and got to work with some great singers some whom i knew from school and some who i was paired with just for that um so that was fun 
So Michaela, what is your either what has been the favorite role that you've played? Um, if you can pick one or a couple. Yeah, I think my favorite role I've ever played was um, Sister Helen Prejean in uh, Dead Man Walking by Jake Heggie uh, when I was at the Boston Conservatory. It was just, it was the first time I did like, like the main role of an opera and creating, it's such a sad story, <laughs> um, but it has like really beautiful, happy moments weaved in and like getting to play a, a real person. Like she's a living, breathing person who's still alive and still an activist. And that was so cool. And um, yeah, I really enjoyed that. And while we were doing that, um, we had a master class uh, with uh, Flicka, uh, with Frederica von Stade, who's like a goddess. <laughs> I just, I, I so admire her. And so, um, she came in to give us like pointers about the show because she was in the original and um she did like a master class with us so i got to sing carabino with her who i i like based my carabino off like her performances are just so beautiful so that was a really really cool moment for me can you take us through the day of a performance what you do during that day leading up to your performance that evening so um i will try to wake up kind of early. It'll probably happen naturally because I'll be really excited. <laughs> and then I'll go to the gym, try to get some of that excess energy out and eat breakfast. But for the rest of the day, I'm pretty chill. I don't like to do a lot of stuff on that day, but I'll get to the um, theater. I try to get there super early, probably before everyone else. And the weird thing, it's not that weird, but the weird thing I eat before is like I eat grapes during performances, um, just because they I don't know they I I'm convinced they lubricate my throat. I don't know. I've done it for so long. I don't even remember why, but it's just a part of my refreshing and yeah. They don't they're not gonna fill you and make you feel like it's not like eating bread for sure. Which they yeah. So I'll I'll eat my grapes. I'll bring a whole bag of them. And then I'll get, uh, well, I'll either warm up first or I'll do my makeup first, depending on my call time. And then get in the costume. And I like to talk to my colleagues. I don't like to be by myself too long. You're not so a quiet. Get in my head. Yeah. I know, I have to be careful with like some people because they do like to be by themselves. Right. So I'll find the people that like to talk. And <laughs> I will get all my jittery energy out, but Mostly, mostly just a lot of excitement and getting ready to go. Yeah. Robert, do you have any day of performance things that you always do? Not really. I mean, I think it just depends on the case of the specific performance and what else is going on in life that day. And um, I, I kind of go back in terms of the whole I want to go talk to people thing before. Mm -hmm. I am very unpredictably polar opposite whether I do or I don't huh. and I don't it's not it's, I don't really under I can't identify what it is but just like some days I'll find that that's very helpful to want to be around people and not really just sitting and waiting and other days if you know we get to a theater and there's performance other days I will just kind of want to go and be my own little world for a bit um 
and it also depends on what I'm doing in the performance too. Is the you know it's not necessarily it's not necessarily the case that I'll be performing myself. I'll I'll often just need to go and be at performances. Right. Um, or if I'm not in the pit, you know, I'm operating the super titles. Right. Which is another thing that people don't really realize that, sometimes yeah. that that's yep. happening in real time and not just a pre-programmed thing. Um, so really, I, yeah, I'm just more case by case. I don't like doing a ton of stuff in the day, but I also don't like just sitting around. I forgot that's something the collaborative pianist does sometimes. If you're, if you're not in the show, is you actually run the super titles. So the super titles that everyone is reading above the stage that's translating it is run by a human in real time, <laughs> which, which honestly, if I didn't work for an opera company, I'm not sure that I would know that. It's, well, why would you? I mean, nobody... Yeah. Right, it seems like something that is programmed, but I'm sure, you know, things happen. Someone skips a line. You got to recognize that, you know, I mean... And it's just, it's a weirdly different kind of focus, too. It's almost more exhausting, I find, to do that because it is so... You know, if you miss a note here or there playing in a recital, which is something that I find is always bound to happen with me because sure. I'm not perfect. Um, I don't know these people who can somehow never right. miss notes or You're not a piano robot. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but, you know, it's the, the moment is gone and it's you're on to something that's hopefully redeeming from that. But if you check out and maybe maybe there's a fermata or a pause over a rest in the music longer than there has been on a different performance, but you are used to there not being so much time, then you press that right arrow button, and all of a sudden, either the punchline of a joke, if it's a comedy, <laughs> oh, is no. up there too soon, <laughs> yeah. or if somebody just died off stage, oh, if no. it's a comedy, no, uh, um, if it's a tragedy, <laughs> um, or a comedy, I guess. People yeah. can die in comedies. Sure. I will say, if, if you ever do come into a show and there are pre-performance slides like the donors and things that usually thankfully is on a loop where you don't have yes. you don't have to sit up there yeah I mean you have to get there early to start them right a lot of the time but you go. can thankfully you know go yeah. away for that half you're hour you're not counting every and, 10 seconds yeah. so that's auto run you know you mentioned earlier a lot of opera is not in English but there seems to be in the last several years an uprise in specifically American operas being written which I think is great because, you know, you want to, you want to use opera in a way. Hopefully, it connects with an audience. And if, you know, I think a lot of people's qualms about opera is that, oh, well, I don't want to have to study the story before I go, and I don't want to have to, you know, I don't understand German, and I don't know French. And yeah, I totally, I totally agree with you. Um, as someone who wasn't didn't grow up with opera a part of me felt the same way you know you I don't want to study before I go to the theater but I think what a lot of people don't realize now is that there are a bunch of operas being written about really relevant topics that are going on in the world and in English um, and I'm sure in other, other language, languages yeah, yeah I'm sure in other languages as well um, and yeah, I think a lot of people just think of the, you know, our, the top 10 heavy hitters, Carmen, Marriage of Figaro, and they don't realize that there's so many others. So or that, that it's necessarily going to be eight hours long. I mean, right. yeah. opera, right. there's, I think it's Not like 30 or 40 minute Julia Child opera. Right. That's just one woman singing. It's a one woman opera. And I think it's just an episode of 
one of like Julia Child's shows. Yeah. Set to music, and it's an opera. And you're like, oh, that's that's an opera? Okay, maybe I do like opera. Okay, so then we'll do some trivia. What is the length of the shortest opera? 28 minutes. Oh, multiple choice. Okay. okay. Yeah. I was like, oh. The look. No, I'm going to give you choices. Okay. Sorry. The give it to me. The look of panic, panic was like, oh, face. no. Okay. So I'll give you choices okay. for this question. What is the length of the shortest opera? 28 minutes, 7 minutes, 4 minutes, or 14 minutes? Are we just shouting out our guesses? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I like, want to say like four minutes, but maybe that's. I'm thinking. I'm thinking fourteen probably. I was gonna seven. We're seven. Seven was a choice. I don't right? think it's. I don't think it's the smallest. But seven gonna, or fourteen. Yeah, okay. I was I'm gonna, gonna pick, pick seven. Can I pick three choices? No. <laughs> I'm. I'm picking seven. Okay, great. So we uh, will give you guys the answers next episode. Um, but thank you both so much for chatting with us. We really appreciate you being willing to take the time and your candor and your openness with us. It was fun. Thanks for having us. And thank of you so course. much for being thank here. Thank you. I'm excited to find out the answers. Yes. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for joining us for our third episode of Arizona Opera Behind the Scenes. Join us next month. We're going to sit down with Alice Fredrickson, She's our costume designer for the upcoming Copper Queen film. We'll be releasing a new behind-the-scenes podcast every month, so make sure you check our website, azopera.org. Follow us where? Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you should join our email list so you can receive notifications about all of our upcoming events that you don't want to miss. Arizona Opera Behind the Scenes is made possible by our lead digital sponsors for the 2021 season, Ron and Kay McDougall. This program is also part of the Arizona Opera Next Gen Initiative that encompasses a wide variety of programs that go beyond the opera stage to develop the next generation of opera artists, audiences, and philanthropists. To learn more about the programs that are part of Arizona Opera Next Gen, please visit azopera.org and click Next Gen Initiative. These programs are made possible through the support of Karen Fruin, Roma Whitcoff, Jeanette J. Siegel, the Valentine Family Foundation, APS, and Jody Pelusi. This podcast is produced by its hosts with editing and music composition by Sean Mallow.